This podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Diana, Texas. If you're in East Texas, you can gather with us on Sundays at 10.15 a.m. You can find more episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on our website, www.fbcdiana.org. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, church. It is good to be with you once again on this Lord's Day. I believe it was last September when Mark kindly invited me to come minister God's Word to you, and it is really good to be back again. This is Father's Day, so it was a great blessing to get to travel here for the weekend to spend time with my family, my father, and and to get to worship you. Sorry, worship with you. The point of my sermon today is not to us, O Lord, give glory, but to your name. So we're worshiping God together today, and What a fitting song to sing together that our God saves. We have a God who is merciful and kind to us. He is a good God. He saves. He has sent his son, Jesus. And we are an undeserving people. Church, before I begin my sermon, I would invite you to turn with me to Psalm 115. I'm going to read our text, and then I'm going to pray for us before we begin. So Psalm 115 And I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. I'll give you just a minute to find your way there. Yeah. invite you to stand with us in honor of God's word together. So Psalm 115, 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we come before you this morning, humbled by the reality that you are an all-glorious God, worthy of all of our worship, all of our praise, and Lord, yet we have time and time again turned to idols, worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Lord, we pray that this morning, this moment, this hour, that you would turn our hearts towards you that you would prepare us, prepare our hearts. Pray that you would find them to be fertile soil for your word, that your word would come and take deep root. And Lord, that you would glorify yourself in our hearts and in this place this morning. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. My sermon this morning is very simple. I want us to consider three things from Psalm 115. The first is who we glorify, 
The second, why we glorify. And third, how we glorify God. In other words, the who, why, and how of worship, according to Psalm 115. Simple enough? But before we begin, it would probably be helpful if we clearly define the word worship. To worship something or someone is to acknowledge, admire, appreciate something's worth. Think of worship as worth-ship. When we worship something, we are saying, this has the utmost value or worth to me. From the most faithful Christian to the most ardent atheist, we all have something in our lives that we have assigned the most worth or value to. There is something that holds a supreme spot and place in our hearts. Whether it is our status at work, our accomplishments, our success, a relationship, money, perhaps it's even ourselves. Each of us has found something or someone that we believe is of the utmost worth. We are by nature worshipers. But God's word is clear though, who we are to worship, who we were created to worship. So who are we to worship? Our psalm today clearly answers that question for us. The psalmist begins in verse 1 by saying, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. Perhaps you find, like me, that this psalm hits a little harder than other psalms. Many other psalms begin by praising the Lord, right? Or calling us to praise the Lord, asking us to extol his name. They're beautiful expressions of worship. And yet here in this psalm, not only are we praising God, but from the get-go, it hits us with, not to us, O Lord. Not only does it have the positive command to worship God, it also has the negative, not to us. This psalm clearly exposes our sinful tendency to worship ourselves. It exposes our self-centeredness. It confronts our sinful hearts that are bent toward the self rather than God. Rather, rather than the glory of God, our hearts are bent towards self-glory, self-worship, self-exalting. Friends, do you think, if you were honest with yourself, do you think you are worth more than other people? That you are more worthy of praise than other people? Do you actively seek to prove your worth to other people? Is that what drives you? Do you long for the day when you get to prove your self-worth to others? Now, the Psalms were the God-inspired prayers and songs for the nation of Israel. And Israel was not immune to this self-centeredness and wanting the other nations, the pagan godless nations, to look at them rather than looking at their God. And the nature of sinful man hasn't changed in the last 3,000 years, we still desire to prove our worth, our glory in the eyes of those around us. This because sinners crave acknowledgement. We crave appreciation. We crave admiration. It's not just the narcissists who do this. Now, for a moment, 
I want to press in on this to help us see how tempting self-worth or self-worship for Christians can be and how subtly this temptation can creep in. Are y'all familiar with what photobombing is? Photobombing? A while back, a pastor by the name of Garrett Kell wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition cleverly entitled, Stop Photobombing Jesus. If you don't know, when a photographer is trying to capture a photo of somebody, perhaps at Disney World, and somebody happens to walk behind the objects for the photograph at just the right time, they would be photobombing that person. Or if my wife is trying to take a picture of my three-year-old daughter, and I sneak up at the last minute to give a little bunny ears, that would be photobombing my daughter, photobombing the picture. But Garrett Kell's point in his article is that oftentimes we photobomb God. We try to. Because we might want, we might say we want the glory be to God. We want people to notice God and turn towards God, but also we want some glory for ourselves as well. We want others to see God at work in us, and we want to share in that acknowledgement, that admiration, that appreciation. We want others to see our devotion to God, how mature in Christ we are, how sacrificial, how servant-hearted, how gifted we are. We so often want people's focus to be on us rather than God. And we wouldn't say we don't want other people to glorify God, but we want to share in that glory so often, in that attention. We're often like James and John, the sons of thunder, who what was their request? That they get to be seated at the right and left hand of Jesus in glory. Like them, it is often not enough for us, for God alone to receive the glory. We want to share in that glory as well. But the psalmist here, he humbles himself and he says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. As Jesus teaches us that we cannot serve two masters, so too can we not worship both God and and man. We cannot worship both God and self. The pursuit of God's glory is completely at odds with the pursuit of self-glory. We cannot pursue God's glory and at the same time pursue glory for ourselves. And so church, who do we worship? What does the psalmist ask God himself to give glory to? And our answer is God, the Lord, Yahweh, This is not just a generic, vague God, but a very specific God. He uses his name. If you're new to the Bible, new to Christianity, if you see the word Lord in all caps, that is in place of the name we know of as Yahweh, God's name for himself. And it is interesting, is it not, that the psalmist here doesn't say, not to us, O Lord, but to your name we give glory. But instead, he says, not to us, O Lord, but to your name, give glory. The psalmist is petitioning God to give glory to himself. Do you see that? And we know from Scripture that God will indeed glorify himself. 
Isaiah 42 verse 8 actually says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will or I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God does not give his praise to carved idols, what man can make. But he gives glory to himself, and the psalmist, as an act of worship, is praying that God would indeed glorify himself. The psalmist desires that God would make his glory known, that he would exalt himself. And we know that all glory belongs to God, and we glorify him by ascribing glory, recognizing his glory, his worth. Now, I don't believe there is anything wrong with saying, God, we give you glory. Not, not at all. We say that all the time, and we should. But we do need to understand that we cannot add any value or worth or glory to God. He is already all-glorious. He is already of supreme worth, whether we acknowledge it or not. When we say, God, we give you the glory, we are simply acknowledging the glory that is already God's. We are recognizing it. We are ascribing glory to God. And the psalmist is praying here that God would give glory to himself, and in so doing, expressing God's supreme worth as an act of worship. The psalmist desires God to be glorified and to make his glory known. And he is saying, God, you are worthy we are not. We are not worthy of glory. The psalmist here in Psalm 115 demonstrates for us the posture of a God-centered life. We do not seek glory for ourselves, but the glory of God. And why do we do so? What reason does the psalmist go on to give us in our text today for ascribing glory to God? Well, our text gives us, I believe, four reasons Four reasons for ascribing glory to God. Why he is worthy and we are not. And we see this in the next 11 verses. And first, at the end of verse 1, the first reason he gives us for why we should give him glory is for the sake of his steadfast love and faithfulness. The end of verse 1 for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Now, there are two Hebrew words I want to draw attention to. First in Hebrew, the word for steadfast love, that is the word hesed. Hesed. This is not an ordinary love. It is perhaps better translated as loving kindness. And if you have a more literal translation of the Bible, you might see loving kindness in your text. It's a difficult word to capture with one word in the English language, for it carries the meaning of a covenant love. Not merely an affectionate or an emotional love, but one that manifests itself also in acts of love and service and demotion, or devotion. The Old Testament uses this term 250 times. God is a God of loving kindness, a God of steadfast love. And the second part of this is faithfulness. The Hebrew word here is emet. Emet. Your translation may have the word truth here instead. And these words, hesed and emet, they're often used in the Old Testament to describe God. They're often paired with each other. And the most repeated refrain in all of the Old Testament about the character of God 
really the most, um, most repeated expression of who God is in all the Bible. We, we find it in Exodus 34, 6, where God declares himself to Moses. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The Lord is a God of hesed and emet, steadfast love and faithfulness or loving kindness and truth, communicating to us the surety of God's love and faithfulness to us. Now, there are many notions of who God is and what God is like. But is this God here that the psalmist gives us, is this the God that you know? Is this what comes to mind when you think of God? Because this is God's desire for you, that when you think of God, you know him as a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. And if you have been at FBC Diana for any amount of time, I have no doubt you have heard God spoken of in this manner. And God lives in a loving, committed, faithful relationship with his people. And we can be assured that God is always going to be faithful. When we gather together on the Lord's day, like we were doing this morning, we are worshiping God and we do not do so because of our steadfast love and faithfulness. We do not sing, God, we are so steadfast and faithful. That's why we worship you. But instead, God, you are steadfast and you are faithful. And that isn't to say that Christians can't have the fruits of loving kindness and faithfulness in our lives. I pray there is much fruit in our lives of those things. But this fruit is the fruit of the Spirit. God's Word even tells us that we love because He has first loved us. God's loving kindness is the cause of our loving kindness, which is why we worship him because of who he is and what he has done, as opposed to who we are and what we have done. We give glory to God and not to us because God is the one who is perfect in these attributes. He is the one who is perfect in steadfast love and faithfulness, and we are not. Therefore, we are not worthy of the glory. Our worship, our songs, like the songs we have sung this morning, they should be God-centered, Christ-exalting songs, making much of his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Church, we give glory to the name of the Lord first because of his character, because of who he is. And our psalmist makes us aware of this, makes this clear for us. But not only that, we also give God glory second because of who he is in his authority. We give glory to God because of his authority. We see this in verses 2 through 3. Let's look at those verses. The psalmist writes, Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. First off, the nations at this time would have represented those people who were outside of the people of God, those who were not in Israel. They were pagans, or we can think of Gentiles here. Remember when the Psalms were written, who were the people of God? The nation of Israel. If you were not a part of Israel, you were alienated from God. You did not have access to the law, to the promises, to the priesthood of Aaron. You were likely worshiping some other God like Baal or the Ashtaroth, many, many others. And the psalmist asks, why should the nation say, where is their God? The psalmist was aware that the nations were asking this question. The Israelite, Israelites made great claims about who their God was and what he had 
promised them, what he had done for them. So likely this psalm was written during a time of hardship for Israel. And the nations were observing the disparity between the good promises that God had made them and the bad circumstances they now find themselves in. Have you ever asked, if God is so good, why are our lives so bad? Why are our lives hard if God loves me and if he is good? The nations knew what Yahweh had promised to his people, and so they were taunting them with this. The fact that they are asking this question indicates that there is no acknowledgement of God. There is no fear of God in their eyes. They are not worshipers of Yahweh. They do not trust in him. Instead, they openly mock and taunt him. Have you ever experienced non-Christians taunt your God? Perhaps when tragedies strike, when natural disasters take place, where is your God that you're praying to? He couldn't have, he couldn't have helped you? Where was your God when this happened, when that natural disaster happened? And have these taunts ever tempted you to despair, to turn against God in frustration? Well, the psalmist gives us a hope-filled answer for the question, where is God? For in verse 3, he says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The psalmist reminds himself and he reminds us. When we go through hardship, not only do we need people to tell us, hey, Rejoice. We need people to tell us what hope we have to rejoice in. Give us a good foundation for continuing on. Here, the psalmist reminds us two truths about God that one, he is in a position of authority. He makes this clear when he says that he is the one who is in the heavens. His throne is in heaven, his throne is not on earth. And two, he is sovereign. The text says that he does all that he pleases. Everything he desires to do, he does because he is able to do so. And a sovereign God is so far beyond what we can fathom. And he calls us to trust in him when we do not understand. He calls us to trust in him, knowing that he is the God in ultimate authority. He is the good and sovereign God. And church, what can we expect the sovereign God who is full of loving kindness and faithfulness to do? What can we expect of a God like that? Act accordingly. Our God always acts in accordance with his character. Even if our circumstances try to teach us otherwise. And so when trials and tribulations come our way, come your way, church, please find comfort in this truth from God's word that everything the God of steadfast love and faithfulness desires to do, he does. And we know from all of scripture, a specific one, Romans 8, 28, that God is working together in all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. God's working all things together for our good and for our glory. Our God has not forsaken you, He has not forsaken us. He is with us. This is why we worship him. Third, the third reason we have to worship God, to give glory to him, is because of the futility of idolatry. We see this in verses four through eight. As he continues speaking, 
speaking of the nations. The psalmist writes, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. The psalmist is well aware that the surrounding nations do not worship the Lord. Instead, they worship images and statues that they themselves craft. Rather than worshiping the creator, they settle for the creation. They settle for idols, for false images that cannot help them. Notice here that the psalmist says these idols do not have the senses of sight, hearing, smell, or touch, nor can they talk or walk. These idols cannot see you in your trials. These idols cannot hear you when you cry out to them. They cannot speak words of truth and encouragement to you. They cannot run to come and help you. They cannot lift a finger to come lift your burden in any way. So why worship them? The psalmist here responds to the taunt of the nations with a taunt of his own. Look at your gods. <laughs> Where are your gods? What can they do? Not only can they not help you, but they make matters worse. The idols actually make you like them. This is the fourth reason the psalmist gives for giving glory to God, and not anything else. He says, look at the idols. If you worship anything other than God, whatever you worship is going to turn you into them. We become like what we worship, a principle that we need to know. One author, G.K. Beale, in a book entitled, We Become What We Worship, writes, God has made humans to reflect him, but if they do not commit themselves to him, they will not reflect him, but something else in creation. At the core of our beings, we are imaging creatures. It is not possible to be neutral on this issue. We either reflect the creator or something in creation. Don't miss what G.K. Beale said here, but what about how we are imaging creatures. We are always reflecting what we worship. Do you know that? We are always worshiping what we are reflecting. And we see this here in Psalm 115, that those who worship these lifeless, unsensing idols become like them. We are given a clear example of this from Israel's history. In Exodus 32, when Israel is gathered at Sinai, shortly after miraculous, miraculously being rescued and redeemed from Egypt, what did they do? They worshiped Yahweh, right? No, they didn't. They worshiped a golden calf. In Exodus 32, verse 4, it says that Aaron received gold from the people and formed with it a golden calf for them to worship, and they did. And quickly after, as God's anger burned, he calls idolatrous Israel a stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked is a way you might describe stubborn cattle. And now it is employed to describe idolatrous Israel. 
You become like what you worship. Israel worshipped that golden calf. They worshipped idols, and they had become stubborn and hard-hearted. And this is a great tragedy for man to become like their idols because we were created for a better purpose, to worship God. We're created to reflect him. Remember in Genesis 2, when God creates man, how does he create him? We are imaging creatures, and God created man in his image. Friends, you and I were created to reflect God in everything we are and everything we do. We were created to reflect the glory of God. People should be able to look at our lives and see what God is like. I want to pause for just a second to ask if someone who had no prior knowledge of Christianity or the God of the Bible were to look at your life, your priorities, the way you use words, what would they think of God? Would they say, God is patient, kind, a good listener, gentle, sacrificial, what would their understanding be? Is the weight of that question crushing to you? It's crushing to me. And friends, do you know why we don't reflect God perfectly? Because we still give in to worshiping inferior gods. That is what it is at the heart of it all. As an obvious and, I think, relevant illustration of this principle of becoming what we worship Because I don't think any of you have statues in your closets that you worship. I have a picture of Aaron Rodgers in my closet. I don't worship him. I try not to. I think he's the greatest quarterback God's ever given us. But I try not to worship him. Um, But I don't think any of us are worshiping um, idols or any images that we craft. But I do think we often worship money. Does money have a heart and soul that cares about the good of others? Does money have infinite value? No. And so by becoming like money, we become greedy and obsessive with our spending or our saving habits. We become anxious, fearful, or prideful based upon how much or how little money we have. Money can be useful. But money is a useless and worthless God, and it makes us like it. And in the process, less and less like God. It destroys us if it is our God. But as we worship God, friends, guess what? We actually begin to reflect God in our lives. Scripture actually teaches us that we become like him. And there are two verses from the New Testament where I believe we see this clearly. The first is found in 2 Corinthians 3.18, where Paul writes, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So as we behold the glory of Christ, what happens? We become more and more like Christ. And the second is found in 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when, we, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. In other words, when we see Christ and worship him in heaven, we shall become like him. One of the hopes for Christians is that one day in heaven, we will be sinless. We will no longer have the temptation to sin. How wonderful that will be.
And church, as we worship God, what have we learned that God is like? Well, he's a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. So friends, does your life reflect that God is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness? God is also the one who is in authority. He is sovereign. Does your life reflect that? How, how would your life reflect that? Um, our lives should reflect that God is in ultimate control and authority. We reflect those truths by trusting in him, by submitting to him. Becoming like Christ does not mean we become Christ, does not mean we become God, but by becoming like the one who perfectly embodies love and faithfulness. In doing so, we reflect his love, his faithfulness. We want to live in such a way in which people look at our lives and see what God is like. Do we do this perfectly? Will we ever do this perfectly before heaven? I do not believe we do. Which is why the psalmist says, not to us, but to your name give glory. God is perfect in steadfast love and faithfulness. Not us. He alone is worthy of the glory. Now, I also hope you're not thinking this morning, after hearing all of this so far, I hope you're not thinking to yourself, well, I hope I worship God enough so that I become like Christ enough so that one day I'm worthy enough to go to heaven or I'm worthy enough for God to love me. Friends, we are not Christians because we worship God enough or we have already attained Christ-likeness enough or because we have already attained a certain level of holiness. No, instead, we are Christians because we have trusted in Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. We've stopped placing our trust in the things that destroy us. We worship Christ in response to his salvation. And growing in our faith as Christians means growing in our worship of God. We cannot grow in our faith. To put it differently, we cannot grow as Christians apart from worshiping Christ. Why? Because we become like what we worship. Growing in Christ is a wonderful goal. We ought all to desire to grow as Christians, but I want us to understand what our primary goal is. Growing in Christ actually flows out of our primary goal, which is the glory of Christ. Remember verse 1, not to us, but to your name give glory. As we worship him, as we worship Christ, we become more like him and his love and his faithfulness. And isn't it good, friends, that God's glory and our good are not at odds with each other. We might find that in other religions, but the God of the Bible has made it clear that his glory and our good go hand in hand for those who are in Christ, for his people. And so, I'm nearing the end. I could stop right there. We could probably have a sermon. Um, But I believe that verses 9 through 11 would be at a better conclusion for us because they teach us how to glorify God. The thrust of our sermon today, of our text, is to glorify God by trusting in him as opposed to other gods. This is the only time in verses 9 through 11 where we hear explicitly 
where we read explicitly an imperative, God actually telling us to do something. The psalmist ends our passage today by repeating the refrain, he is their help and their shield. Emphasizing the importance of placing trust in the only one who can be a help to them and be a shield for them, which is why he keeps repeating the refrain, trust, trust in him. Beginning in verse 9, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. God gives us, the psalmist gives us actually a fifth reason to glorify God. That's because he and he alone is our help and our shield. But we glorify God by trusting in our help and our shield. Verses 9 through 11, the psalmist moves from Israel, encompassing all of the people of God, to the house of Aaron, the family of priests that God entrusted with the responsibility of leading Israel in worship. To lastly, in verse 11, he says, you who fear the Lord. In other words, you who have a reverential awe for God, a a holy respect for him, now trust in him. Now at this time, who were those who feared the Lord? Again, they were Israel. God was their redeemer when they were in trouble. He was their protector. He was not like the false gods who would have no ability to redeem or protect or even to satisfy them. How can false gods, when they can't speak, see, hear, smell, or feel, they can't even walk or talk, how can they help Israel? The psalmist directs our attention to the Lord. He is the one who is in the heavens and does all that he pleases. He is all glorious. He is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. And in all of his glory, he does not change. Israel could always depend on them, on him. Israel could always depend on him to fulfill his promises to them and to help them. But even though you and I are not the Israel of the Old Testament, In the New Testament, we see that as God's word goes forth, the gospel goes forth, goes out even to the Gentiles, to where now through faith in Jesus, we can be those who now fear the Lord. God is calling all of us today to turn to our help and our shield and to trust in him. You and I can always depend on God to fulfill all of his promises to us and to be a help and shield to us. And how has he proven this to us? How has God been a help and shield to us? We need to know this. Look no further than Jesus Christ. He is the one who in his steadfast love helped us by living the life that you and I could not live. The life that God requires each and every one of us to live for salvation, but we couldn't do it because we are sinners God sent Christ to do what we could not do. He also sent Christ to die the death that you and I deserved. He died on the cross in our place, bearing our sin and our guilt. Jesus is not like the false images and idols who cannot help us. But do you know what God's word tells us about Jesus? While he is not like those false images in Colossians 1, Beginning in verse 15, it does say that he is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, for his glory. We glorify God by trusting in him, not our idols, by acknowledging his worth, his ability to come through for us. Friends, when you find yourselves struggling with sin, perhaps with lust or greed or anger, consider what it is that you are worshiping instead of God. Consider what it is that you are trusting in. Consider what false gods you are worshiping that are giving way to this sinfulness. Ask yourself, what am I trusting will give me satisfaction other than God? What am I trusting in that will bring me ultimate comfort, joy, and hope? We can always trace our sin back to our idols. Idols that will eventually make us like them. And when you find your idols, when you realize what they are, remember their futility, their worthlessness. And like the psalmist, learn to mock them. Learn to mock your idols. The nations may taunt our God and be dead wrong in doing so, but you and I can and should taunt our idols, for they cannot help us. In fact, trusting in them can only do us more harm, making us like them. Idols are made by human hands that are worthless gods. Those who trust in them become like them. So this morning... If you are someone who trusts in Christ for your salvation, but you feel burdened by your struggle with idolatry, ask God to search your heart, to expose your idols, and confess your sins to God, knowing that he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Remember that God is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. He still loves you. He is faithful even when you are not. God, through the psalmist here, is causing us, he's calling us to lift our eyes to him. You who fear the Lord, trust in him. He is your help and your shield. And if you are here this morning and you have never trusted in Christ for salvation, this morning he's inviting you to come to him. He is the help and shield of his people of all who place their trust in Jesus and what he has done at the cross to save them. And in response to who God is and what he has done for us in giving us such a great salvation, the posture of our hearts should be, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. As we trust in our help and our shield. Amen and amen. We trust that this message edified the listener and glorified the God who shows love and mercy to sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his son. Would you take a moment to leave a positive rating for us on your podcast app? You'll be helping others find this episode and more like it. If you'd like more information about First Baptist Diana, then please visit our website, www.fbcdiana.org.